Welcome to QAV Club 18, QAV Club members. Thank you for supporting the show. This week, we're going to feature part one of an interview that Tony and I did recently with an American, our first American on the show, Austin Lieberman. He's a private investor who was recommended to us by one of our listeners uh, because Austin's involved in a forum and he's reported some pretty extraordinary results over the last few years. So we're going to have a chat with him about what he does and how he does it. And I'm going to just put part one of it. It was an hour long interview and I thought rather than just put it out as an entire episode, I'll start splitting these longer interviews up into part one and part two. So we can put out an hour long episode this week, part one of the interview with Austin, and then we're going to have a stock analysis. Now, the stock analysis is one that Tony and I actually recorded about a month ago, and it's Afterpay. Now, if you've been paying attention with the interviews with Alan Kohler and Matt Joss, uh, Tony really isn't convinced that these tech growth stocks are uh, good investments. Not that some of them don't do extraordinary extraordinarily well it's just that he's not exactly sure how to pick the right ones they don't map to his methodology and that's one of the reasons we're asking alan Kohler and matt joss and in austin's interview as well he's trying to figure out if any of these guys have a methodology that he can make sense of anyway uh there's been a lot of stuff about afterpay in the news in the last month, including today, I'm recording this intro on the 2nd of July and the um, CEO has just announced he's stepping down um, and there's been some big board changes. So we'll see what happens as a result of that. And also it was just announced in the last couple of days that Visa are going to be competing directly with them. Anyway, uh, you'll catch that in the second half. Let's get into the first part of our interview with Austin Lieberman. Tony Austin, Austin Tony. Hello. How you doing, Tony? I'm good, good. Okay. So what today on the show, Austin Lieberman talking to us from somewhere in the States. Remind me where you are, Austin. I am in the beautiful state of Florida. Florida. Lovely. My new book is being published by a company in Florida. Which part of Florida are you in, Austin, if you don't mind? Uh, I've been there a couple of times. Yeah, I'm in um, northern Florida, kind of in the uh, Jacksonville area. Um, oh, yeah. And just before this, we were in Atlanta, and before that, I was in the Air Force, so we kind of traveled all over the place, so kind of okay. lived lived all over. And now you've settled in Florida. Florida always reminds me of uh, Queensland, Cam. I've been to Florida. Oh, you've been there? Okay. Yep. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the bath salts capital of the world, Florida. That's where I always go to get my bath salts. Yeah, and I've always, I've always wanted to um, visit Australia, and I appreciate you guys inviting me and offering a, a fully paid trip to Australia for coming on this podcast. So um, we'll talk about that afterwards. So yeah, thanks. You've, you've shared with us your portfolio performance <laughs> results. I, I think you should be paying us, Austin. Before we get into that, um, I want to thank Duncan Owen for introducing us. Duncan's a listener of the show. And he started telling us via email about Saul's investing discussions, uh, which is, uh, I think, a forum that he's been following for some time. And he said that you're part of that and he introduced you. So thanks again to Duncan, who also introduced us to the last guest we had on, Matt Joss. So um, you were kind enough, Austin, to uh, shoot us a screenshot of your portfolio results before going to air. And I had to pick myself off off the ground. I think Tony chunk, uh, choked on his uh, ham sandwich he was having at the time. Uh, and Tony, but just before we started recording, you wanted to you wanted to leap into some questions. So let me do that, and then we'll get Austin to uh, maybe give us a little bit more of his background. Oh yeah, no, that's uh, I, I saw the uh, 
the performance just as I was setting up for this recording, and it's quite impressive. I just uh, the question I had was, how does it compare to the U.S. market in general? Because it's been going up this year as well. Yeah, um, so I don't know. I can look it up exactly what it is year to date. So what I shared was my the I kind of shared like three screenshots: the year to date performance, um, the seven day performance, so performance in my portfolio over the last seven days, which is terrible, down nine percent in seven days. Um, and then the third screenshot I shared there is uh, portfolio return. It shows 30-day, one year, and since inception. And then right below that, it shows SPX, which is a an S&P 500 index. So that's a that's a pretty close track to the, the S&P 500. And so over the last 30 days, my portfolio is up 6.9% versus the S&P 500. It's around 2.33%. The last year, so that's 12 months, not year to date, is I was, I'm up 62% and the S&P 500 um, is about 8.25%. And then since inception, which for me is November 2014, so not a long time, um, and I, I fully realize that. And, and I know we've been in a bull market, and that's a huge part of this. And so a lot of people think they're really smart in bull markets. Um, but uh, so certainly benefiting from that, um, my portfolio is up 233% versus the S&P 500 at about 58% uh, since November 2014. Yeah, very impressive. So you've obviously heard the Buffett quote about a rising tide, lifting all boats. Yeah, <laughs> It's only when we get into a downturn that we see how portfolios perform. Not, not saying you'll do any worse in the downturn because they're very impressive numbers. Um, interesting though, you're up, you're up, oh gee, what? eight times market for the year, and you've come off 10% in the last week. But I know you also have sent us uh, some measures of the risk in the portfolio. So first blush look at the numbers you've given us, it seems like a volatile portfolio, but I, I'm looking at the risk numbers you've given us, and it doesn't seem that way. So maybe you could just talk to us about the risk in the portfolio and maybe tell our listeners how you measure that and what kind of methodologies are used to measure that. Before we get too deep into that, Tony, I, I just thought we could start with a little bit of background about Austin and uh, he could tell us a bit of his story and the methodology, and then we can get into the portfolio. Sure. You know, you know me, Cam. I'm all about the numbers, right? You need to let, know. Me, you need to let me talk <laughs> yeah, yeah. about myself and tell you how great I am. And how... Well, I want to know, I want to know, how did you, you know, how did you get into investing? Where did you, so you're a, uh, an Air Force guy, is that right? Before that? Yeah, that's correct. I'm super excited that, that you all want to know, uh, you know, how I got started investing and, and I, to rewind that, not just me, but I'm super excited and thankful for people doing exactly what you two are doing. And, and so Tony, you know, you've amassed this awesome amount of knowledge over the past, I think it's uh, to try to do a little bit of research. I think it's like 15, 20 years, something like that. Yeah. Probably more like 25, 25. I'm sorry about that. And now you're, you're creating this show and this, this, this way to share all this information so that people who are consuming media through podcasts, through online or whatever, which is, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old and, and there's people younger than me doing it. Somebody's going to hear this and it's going to completely change their life. Um, and, and I'm super thankful for that. And, and I'm kind of trying to do the same thing as you guys are, except I'm coming from a, Hey, I'm, I'm no expert by any means. I'm just trying to document and share my portfolio returns and, and hopefully somebody just gets inspired um, to invest. So, I wanted to say thank you for for what you're doing and and to tie it into my background and how I got started is um, 
you know, I grew up in middle-class family, never anybody that was like super into investing or anything like that. So it wasn't my parents and we really didn't talk about money that much because um, it's a taboo to- topic in a lot of households. So I really didn't get exposed to investing until I started in the Air Force. And I was I was young, had just graduated college and I, I commissioned into the Air Force. And um, the, the first thing I did because I had this, you know, good paying job and fortunate not to have student debt was I went out and bought a $40,000 truck, which is, you know, not the way that you start investing. Right. Um, and I would have continued down that path until thankfully I just ran across somebody and it, it, Cameron, it sounds like this was kind of the experience you had with Tony, um, that had been successful investing. And and I, I just happened to be lucky enough to work in the same office as them. And they just shared their knowledge with me. And they were uh, somebody that had invested in individual stocks, not, you know, an indexer or anything like that. And so that was my exposure. And um, that's, that's really how I started. Um, And what this person had been doing was following the Motley Fool, which I think your last guest actually was, they had worked for the Motley Fool. Um, And so, um, and I I don't know when this will air, but the, the guest that I just heard prior to this, and so that's that's really where I learned is I just I subscribed to the Motley Fool, their stock advisor and rule breaker service, and then just became a huge fan and and tried to learn by doing and learn by reading, um, but not just by reading because I don't think you really learn that way. Um, and so that was probably 2011, 2012. I slowly got a little bit um, involved with the Motley Fool. They have they have. Um, People, they've, they've got some community forums and you can kind of apply to be what's called a ticker guide. And that's just somebody that kind of helps out on the forums um, by no means an analyst or anything like that. And so I just basically tried to dive in and learn as much about investing as possible. And so 2012 to 2016, 17, I really took the Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker approach, which is they recommend stocks every month. And my portfolio was about 80 companies. Um, and then in 2017, I, I started to really concentrate my portfolio. And, and now in the, what I shared with you is I think I'm, I own 10 companies right now. Um, and that's something I would have never done before because I was afraid of um, having you know too much concentration and just the portfolio getting destroyed, which is certainly possible. Uh, but what's happened really in, in the past three years is um, since I did start concentrating down is the, that's when that performance really picked up, but it comes with a lot of risk. And, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there and I don't know if you have any questions, but I'm certainly happy to jump into the risk or I can cover anything else. Cameron, if you wanted to know a little bit. One more question, Austin, then I'll shut up and let you two nerds talk. Um, so <laughs> the last guest we had on, uh, Matt Joss, who, as you said, um, Used to be a portfolio manager with Motley Fool here in Australia. He's a he's a full time investor, mm-hmm. a portfolio manager, and now privately. Um, are you? Is this something you do full time, or or do you have a, a real job? And this is just your um, hobby. Yeah, um, yeah, I totally forgot to talk about that. Um, yes, I have a full time job. I, so no, I am not a full time. Actually, you asked me two questions, so I can't say yes or no. Uh, you. <laughs> I am not a, a full-time investor. Um, I have a full-time job and then I invest as a hobby basically. Um, but what it has done is it, it, and this is the amazing thing about investing and in compound interest. And, you know, back when I started, 
I could never imagine a, a portfolio, you know, investing, unlocking these these possibilities in my life that they have in my family's life that they have already. And it's just freedom over your time and control of who you spend your time with and spending time with people you want to. I've actually been able to kind of switch jobs and, and move into a job that I'm super passionate about. I work at a place called Lambda School, which is they teach software engineering online and, and it's it's completely remote. And then my position is, is remote as well. Um, so I'm able to work from home, uh, spend more time with my family and do a, a really cool job. And then I, I'm just super passionate about investing. So I spend my free time doing that. What, what do you do at Lambda? I, do you teach something? I'm a career coach, so I'm not smart enough to actually teach software engineering. Um, <laughs> but I, I help career coach. So I help, um, with resumes, um, LinkedIn portfolios, interview prep, salary negotiations, all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It is great. Uh, you know, you know what they always say though, Austin. Those that can do, those that can't, podcast about it. So that's uh, just keep that in mind if you're looking for a you know a third career. Yeah, just you can always start a podcast. Be a, pod, be a podcaster. All right, that- I'll shut up and let you two nerd out. Well, that's. Um- I think that's a really important point that uh, investing and getting some financial you know, assets behind you gives you the freedom to do what you want to do. That's certainly been my motivating force uh, over the years. I, I wouldn't see myself as being any sort of super capitalist, but it's it's really unlocking that sort of lifestyle of being able to not be obligated to a boss, not be beholden to a company um, and, and to follow your own nose, basically. And, and we all do different things. I think it's great that you're doing what you're doing and I do th- other things that, which are different. But that's that's the whole essence of having freedom is you can do whatever you like. And that's I think that's a really important point. Yeah. And it, it also so not only financially does it allow you to do things, but but investing. I was in the military and, and it like learning about business and investing actually helped me in my military job. And I think it helps me in the job I have now because you you look at things with a long-term mindset. You, you start to think about, hey, what's working out there in the world? How, how are these businesses doing things? How can I apply that to the job I have? So to me, it's, it's, it's so much more than just the numbers and it, it's unlocking your life potential. It's unlocking potential in others. And then it, it just, to me, it makes me a better employee as well. Um, just that yeah, knowledge. good point. Yeah, you think analytically. That, that really sharpens up that analytical thinking process as well. And uh, and I, like I've said before, I think on this podcast that in my career in business, there were just I was just floored by so many people who didn't actually understand how the nuts and bolts of a business actually worked, what the finances were. You know, I was part of a big company, and we were in a takeover situation, and people were running around like headless chooks, not knowing whether they should be cashing in their employee stock options or whether they should be you know, holding them or what. And no one could analyze our company's own balance sheet to work out what a fair price was for it. No, I remember I was just in the man going around into people's offices, senior managers' offices and putting numbers up on the whiteboard and saying, here's what's, here's what the, here's what the takeover, takeover off is going to be. And it was pretty close to the actual number and everyone was just amazed. And, and I was amazed that they didn't know how to analyze the company they were working for. Yeah. But the other other comment you made, which which I made a note of here while you were talking, was that I think you said you grew up in a household where finance was a taboo topic, and I think you're right. I think that's pretty common in most households, and that's I think that's worth underlining that uh, as people who listen to this podcast do start down their road of financial freedom, is to talk about it in their family, talk about it with their kids and their friends and their relatives, and 
not everyone's going to be interested, particularly the kids, but at least if they know you're interested and you're a resource, they may approach you later on for advice. Yeah, I agree um, 100%. And then even outside of that, like, I mean, I guess you can get yourself in danger or whatever, but I I try to talk about it, not annoyingly, but any, anybody that wants to in in the workplace and, and places like that. And, and obviously there's some lines you can't cross, but um, it's it's just sad that we don't, we don't learn about finance and financial literacy and investing really through any school. And, and so, um, but I think there's a movement and I think it's things like this, what you're doing that, um, is helping with that. Yeah, no, it's good, isn't it? Okay. Well, back, back to, I guess, our list of topics. Um, we were, I wanted to ask you a question about the risk management of your portfolio or the risk measures, sorry, you use to, 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 uh, tell yourself how risky that portfolio is and how it's performing. Can you take me through that, please? Yeah. So, w- what I shared with um, you two is is I pulled these screenshots directly. For, I use Interactive Brokers, um, which is a, a brokerage for anybody that's listening. I, I don't know if you all talk about this or not, um, and and what what your stance is. But for me, if somebody that is just kind of starting out and in investing and just looking to learn about buying individual stocks probably not the ideal platform for them so, something like a more com- a more common one that that's got some basic features is, is really good and really all you need i got into this because I, I at times i have done like options and a few other things that could absolutely destroy your por- portfolio weapons of mass financial destruction according to charlie munger so that's why I, I started using interactive brokers but one of the really nice things it has some really cool reporting tools so all those those returns i didn't track of myself or anything like that, that's pulled straight um, TWR, so time-weighted return from their analyst tool. And it, it also gives you risk. And sharp ratio, <laughs> um, you know, I really don't even pay a, t- a whole lot of attention to it. I know that it, it, it has to do with uh, how much your portfolio is supposed to move in relation to the, uh, like the market moving. And then standard deviation, which is also listed on here, I think that's just a percent. That's kind of a, a similar thing in the percentage. So again, I'm I don't focus on those at all. But what I'll what we could talk about, I think that people can relate to, and and it is something that if you invest in the way that I that I do, which is a concentrated portfolio, you have to be prepared for this to happen. Um, that so we'll go max drawdown in the last thirty days. It's been eight point five two percent. That that's a lot. That's that so eight. 0.52% of my portfolio gone. Um, and, you know, we talk about compounding. That's, it's scary. That's more than a year or two years of, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what the numbers are off the top of my head, but two years of income, we could call it gone. Um, right. So um, that's, that's the last 30 days. And then over the last year, there was a 34% drawdown in my, my portfolio from September, which, I'm sure you all remember this September, 2018 to December, 2018. Mm-hmm. So the last quarter of last year when the world was ending, um, <laughs> it, it was a 34% drawdown. And so my, I guess my message to share with that is for one, you got to be prepared for it if you invest in the way that I do. Um, and two, there's so much more to investing than picking the right companies or, or finding the right investments. You have to, you have to do the things on the front. And this is when I say you, I mean me, because I speaking for myself, I have to do things on the front end 
to prepare myself and my life to be able to handle that without thinking I need to go to cash or without trying to time the market. And so the way I do that is I don't have any money that I know that I'm going to need for a, a big purchase in the next three to five years. So an example, we just bought a house recently. As soon as we knew we were going to buy a house, we took out what we knew we'd need for a down payment out of our investments because so I don't have anything in the market that I know I'm going to need in the next three to five years. And, and so that I don't view that as a cash position in my portfolio. That is just a, the way that my, we manage our finances because by doing that, that allows me to invest in the way that I do. Does that make, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. But let me get back to the, the last quarter of last year. So a 30 odd percent drawdown in your portfolio. Do you have, uh, you, you obviously don't have any stop losses in place or any, uh, methodologies that, that might look at a, a stock price graph before deciding whether to hold or sell, do you? No, not, not at all. Um, I, I don't, I personally do not believe in using stop losses. Um, and it's just the way that I, the way that I invest. So the, I don't, uh, buy or sell a stock based on whether it goes up or down or, or anything like that. What I pay attention to is, you know, when they report quarterly earnings, how is the business performing is, is what management said, can we rely on that? And are they coming through or does, is there something that surprises them? And then, uh, so maybe they, they don't perform as well as they do. And then, and then naturally when that happens, the stock would probably fall. If there's a business reason that the, in the fundamentals change and the stock falls, that's when I consider selling, not because it's falling. Um, another reason I'll sell is if I, if there's another company that I think is a, a better investment, I will sell a company that I own and buy whatever I think is, is the better investment. And then kind of the third reason that I'll sell is, um, if a company, so I shared, I shared my portfolio with you and then there's those white numbers there, which are the percentages. That's the percent allocation of my entire portfolio that those companies represent. So we've got a few that are 16% or a couple that are 16%. Got one that's 18% and one that's another one that's 16%. So that's four companies that make up, uh, what 60% of my portfolio, 65% of my portfolio. Um, what I learned just through doing this because I got, I got super nervous. So I own the trade desk. The trade desk is my largest position. It's 18% of my portfolio before they reported their last earnings. It was about 25% of my portfolio. And I realized I was super uncomfortable going into earnings. And so I trimmed that position down to about, I forget exactly what it was, but somewhere down to around 20% or 19% because the allocation had gotten too, too high for my comfort level. So that's the third reason that I'll, I'll sell a stock. And, and in that case, I'll usually trim it. And if, if a, so if a stock gets to 20 to 25% of my, my entire portfolio, I know that I'm not comfortable with it that large. So I'll, I'll consider trimming it, but I certainly won't sell out of it uh, because, and this is a David Gardner thing. I know the last person you had talked about David Gardner and the Motley Fool. Um, he believes that winners keep winning. And I believe the same thing. Um, I mean, I, I model a lot of my investing after, after him. So I would never want to sell a company 
just because the price went up. I think that's a terrible reason to sell. There's extreme cases. If it gets, you know, bubble, bubble territory, then then that's a different thing. But uh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, would you buy more than if, if a company you knew well <clears throat> had a large position in was going down 20, 30%, would you buy more or would you just write it out? There, it, it depends on the reason. So if it's, um, that, that happened a little bit in the last quarter of last year. So I guess the general answer is if it's a, because of a, a macro thing, like the entire market is going down. And so every company is going down. What I will tend to do in those situations is, is the, the companies that I have the highest conviction in, I'll look to add to those. So I have a second reason that I, I can invest the way that I do. And that's because I'm, I'm still young and I'm in my accumulation years. I'm still getting paid and still contributing every month. So that's where I'll look to add money monthly, or I'll trim the positions that I'm the least confident in and then add to positions that I'm, I have the most confidence in if it's a market wide sell off. What I don't do is, is try to find like a value play or if a company, um, reports bad earnings and the the stock falls for that reason i I will not look to invest more and in fact that would be a reason that i would look to sell look i think you what you've said is totally valid but can i just just say that uh going back to and you might want to go back and test your theories on say 2001 after the dot-com crash and 2007 2008 after the gfc when you go through market downturns where just everything crashes uh i i found myself i was like you uh, say before the GFC, where <clears throat> I, I wouldn't necessarily sell because the stock price was going down, and would take the view that you know that's a disconnect from the value of the company. And value and price often do disconnect, and you have to decide whether you are a buyer or a seller at that price. And I hung on, uh, and so my my portfolio went down, I think twenty percent in the in two thousand and seven. And I you know thought, okay, well twenty percent that's a bad year, but it's not the end of the world type stuff. Then I went down 20% again in 2008, and 20 on 20 in a compounding is losing half the portfolio. So, you know, I went back and, and that's when I started to add a, a thing we call on, on this podcast, the three-point checklist. So if you look at the graph, there's usually a, a, a buying channel. As the stock goes up, it's making new highs on the channel, and it's also making, you know, lows in the trough as well. And as soon as those get broken, it's a buy signal or a sell signal. And that's when you start to look pretty hard at things. Uh, and I went back and because I have a, a checklist I use, I could go back and regression test my, my holdings by applying that checklist at any particular point in history. And I, I would have saved myself a lot of money in those general market downturns by, by selling at the, at the break point of those, um, the, you know, the line crosses the bottom of those trough lines. And so I, I make that part of my checklist now. And I, I just, you know, without, you know, wishing to disagree with your style, I just probably suggest to you, you have a look at that. Um, because these, these downturns happen. They come out of left field. They're, they're necessarily a black swan event. No one sees them coming and no one sees why it should apply to the stocks you hold. I mean, you know, so what if, if people are handing back their keys and walking away from their mortgages in the US? How does that affect a department store retailer in Australia? But it did. And uh, yeah, it's just um, just something you might want to look at. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, that's my, uh, my soapbox. Um, it sounds like you're confining your, um, your investments to the US stock market. Is that right? For the most part, um, I have invested in, so I 
previously owned Shopify and Atlassian, which Shopify is a Canadian company. Atlassian is an Australian company. Um, I have owned Mercado Libre, which I think is headquartered in Brazil. I've owned a few Chinese companies um, at different times. And, and again, it's, it's all, you know, just feeling what you're comfortable for. And so Atlassian and Shopify, um, I, I really, so I guess I didn't talk about my strategy and what I look for a whole lot. So I, I invest uh, exclusively in founder led companies. And then I, I look for companies that are normally kind of sub $20 billion market cap. I look for companies that are growing preferably faster, uh, you know, uh, year over year. Uh, so quarterly year over year revenue growth of uh, like 40% or higher. Um, and then I look for high gross margins, low uh, sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue. Um, and then high, so if it's a software company and they're a subscription company, I think I heard you talk about this a little bit on the last podcast or the guest um, net expansion rates or net revenue retention rates, which is basically uh, if that number is over 100%, that means that customers uh, spend more each year with them. So those are kind of the things I look for. And what also really matters to me is management and then um because I own so few companies, I spend a lot of time just watching how management talks to people. How do they, how do they handle themselves? How do, what do they say during earnings calls? Are they, are they like salesmen or women? And does it sound like they're having to feel, they feel like they have to sell their company uh, and, and get investors. I don't, I don't like that at all. Um, and so with that is a, I have to have a feeling of trust and what I've just noticed and I'm, <laughs> I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but there's just certain companies that I feel in, in certain countries that I feel that I don't, not as comfortable with. Uh, I just, I live in America. I, I feel like I have a better feel of what's going on here. Um, than I do in, in say China for Chinese companies and with, I, I don't know their reporting regulations, you know, all that stuff. So generally I stick to, uh, U.S.-based companies, but I, I am willing to expand beyond that if I find the right management, founder, and, a, and the right company. All right. Well, let's draw a line under that as part one of the Austin interview, and I'll put part two up next week. Uh, and we'll get into a stock analysis. Now, the one that I want to do this week is one that Tony and I recorded actually about a month ago on the 5th of June, and it's Afterpay. We did this when we were in Sydney. Now, uh, Afterpay has been beaten around recently, if you've been paying attention in the news. And in fact, as you'll see in this episode, Tony, as it turns out, is quite the prophet because he did say, you know, I, <clears throat> I don't know how they will their valuation will stand up against competition coming into the market and of course in the last couple of days it's just been announced that Visa are going to directly start competing with Afterpay with a buy now pay later option. So I'll include some stories around that in the show notes if you can go and have a read of that but as you'll see uh, Tony's analysis on some of the challenges with investing in a company like this turned out to be correct. I mean, Afterpay's share price is still looking good. It's up massively over the last couple of years. 
but uh, whether or not it's going to survive the next couple of years is another question. We don't know. When we had Alan Kohler on, and I think we've talked about this a few other times, you've talked about some of the challenges uh, that you have in uh, analysing tech companies because a lot of their valuation is built around you know, future cash flow, not anything you can see on the balance sheet today. And I said to you um, off air before that if you don't buy these and, and companies and then their stock goes up, you, you might look like a fool, um, but you didn't seem very concerned about that. No, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have much self-esteem if I worried about looking like a fool. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I don't because... I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but say there are 100 shares on the, the stock market which meet my criteria as a, as a buy, the ones that score highly on our checklist, there's another 2,900 that don't. And given the stock market goes up, you know, maybe half of those ones that we don't like are going to go up. So it, this is really a probabilities game. I'm, I'm saying I'd rather buy shares, quality shares at a good price because on balance, they'll deliver more returns than buying shares which don't meet those criteria. I'm not saying that shares that don't meet that criteria won't go up. Mm-hmm. They will, and, and it'll happen every day of the week. But on probabilities, we're better off concentrating on the ones that we can buy at a good price and have quality. And I, and I simply don't I simply don't get the arguments that I've heard so far about why you should invest in some of these tech stocks, and it's all around... Um, the network effect and building a platform and being first to market, all those kinds of things. Uh, I think it, it obviously has worked and can work, but I'm not seeing much science around it. How do I separate enough to pay from, I think it's Zip, their competitor. Uh, is someone saying, I think that Afterpay have a better management team or a, a more compelling offer than their competitor? Why would... Why would Afterpay be... How do I rate Afterpay being better than their competitor? How do I know that... I mean, it's great pitches that's going offshore into the US and the UK. How do I know that those two big markets won't throw up a competitor, mm. which has a, a, a local um, advantage over Afterpay? That a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley won't throw a couple of billion dollars behind a yeah. direct competitor. Exactly. They won't reverse engineer Afterpay. And I guess there's always there's always a risk in going overseas that you may not know the local laws or the local cultures and that a product like Afterpay may be good in Australia but not quite as good in the US or the UK and it won't take someone long to say, well, I've got a better Afterpay than Afterpay and here it is. Mm. Yeah. So I guess what I'm looking for, and someone might be able to help me, is what's the science around valuing these companies? Is it is it the number of consumers? Is it their rate of growth? Is it their some kind of quantitative assessment of how good their management team is. I mean, mm. I know that people point to those things, but where are the metrics? I was just uh, chatting with my mate in here in Sydney, Jason Van, who's the former CTO of Touch Group that developed Afterpay. And I said, hey, well, if we, we should have got you in here to yeah. chat about this because I'm sure he'd be able to provide some insights. He's a very smart fella. Uh, maybe we'll get him we on to get him on, yeah. talk us through how yeah. he sees it at some point. Yeah, because like uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in these stocks. It's just that they don't meet my checklist. Mm. My experience is that that for every one you get right, you'll get two or three wrong in right. this kind of space. And you don't care about missing stocks. You're just trying to 
pick a good portfolio that will deliver the return that you want. And mm-hmm. if you miss some as part of that, then say la vie, you don't lose any sleep over it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And and I also don't worry about it because I'm not incurring the risk. And I think that's one of the big issues with these kinds of stocks. If you don't know what the value of the stock is, how do you know when it's overvalued and it's time to sell? So if you look at the graph for Afterpay, it's it's going up, 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 up. And it's going to be very hard to pick the top when if you don't know what it's worth. Uh, and, and it could come crashing down equally as fast. So... That's, that's the risk I'm trying to avoid in these kind of stocks. Right. So should we analyse it? Yeah, let's get into it then. Well, maybe we should just talk about Afterpay first of all for people who don't know what it is, but it's an Australian stock. Uh, it, it approaches retailers and does deals with retailers and chains of retailers to say that if someone comes in and uses Afterpay, which is a, an app on their phone, you're going to, the, the shop is going to, give Afterpay a commission, which I think is 4% from memory. And then the user, the person who's made the purchase, gets to pay off that purchase in four equal instalments. So there's no interest rate charge to the end user. So that's made it very popular with millennials who probably quite rightly have shunned credit cards and and paying 19, 20% interest on, on their debt. They know they can go out and buy a new shirt or shoes or whatever. And these days they're going to dentists and things like that and putting their, their purchases on four equal instalments, no interest, and Afterpay gets the 4% from the retailer, which is their income. So it's quite a simple, effective model, and it's particularly appealing to millennials. So it, it gets ticks all around for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a disruptor for credit cards. So if again, if I was Visa and MasterCard, I'd be trying to introduce a similar product so I'm not losing market share to Afterpay. And with the networks that Visa and MasterCard have, you'd wonder... Yeah, they'd be a pretty good competitor to a company like Afterpay. I wonder how long it'll be before they come into the market. Mm. I just want to point out again that we recorded this episode almost uh, a month before Visa announced they were actually going to be competing in that space. But that would require Visa and MasterCard sort of white anting their existing yeah. business model, That's which right. we know from Clayton Christensen's work, that's very difficult for businesses that dominate in one paradigm to make the transition to the next paradigm, particularly if it involves white anting their traditional business model. Right. Yeah, I I think particularly from what I see with the Australian banks and probably particularly with Westpac, maybe ComBank as well, the CEOs are saying, let's set up a VC unit to try and disrupt their own business. I don't know if that's happening with Visa and MasterCard. And I don't know if it'll be successful, but at least they're awake to the fact that it's um, that they could be disrupted and overtaken, and they should at least be trying to work in that space as well. Mm. But you know, television businesses did that twenty years ago, but none of them turned into Netflix, mm-hmm. and uh, newspaper businesses did that, but then Google News and Facebook have come along and taken big chunks of their business. It's very hard, for even these corporations with very very smart people. I actually knew the guy who uh, was Rupert Murdoch's like internet guy. He was an ex um, here and see he was um, an ex packer guy. I can't remember his name. He then did some work with uh, Daniel Petrie's organisation that was sort of uh, one of the big investors in Nine MSN and other startups. Went to 
be Rupert's right-hand man in New York to help him navigate internet thing. I think he was the guy that recommended Rupert buy MySpace, which he lost $500 million on pretty quickly. But yeah, it's difficult. Well, and we know what plan B is. If you find yourself being disrupted and you're a big company, what do you do? You buy Afterpay and shut it down. Yeah, or you, you know, hit them with some sort of lawsuit to slow right. them down or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Or buy them and shut them down, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the blue sky built into this share price probably isn't acknowledging those kinds of risks, and that's one thing which, which uh, I'm very careful about. We saw that happen a lot in the early dot-com days in retail. I think uh, some of these companies we've mentioned in the past, like these Australian online retailers like uh, D-Store and Wishlist and some others, ended up getting acquired by big retailers and then quietly dismantled. Yeah, they're not around today, are they? No. Well, I think they got spun off or different things happened. The brand survived in some cases, but yeah. yeah. They got acquired and then <laughs> they're always... They're always acquired by these big companies. They say, oh, we love what you're doing and we're going to take it to new levels. And the founders are like, oh, it's going to be so great. They're going to do this, that and the other. And then it just goes away. Yeah. And that's, I mean, some experience I've had with that limited experience is it's often a cultural misfit as well because you get this hotshot entrepreneur coming into a, a large corporate behemoth and they just don't gel that well. Yeah. Guys being asked to sit around in committees all day, but he's used to running around on the store and picking up the slack when uh, someone's sick or whatever. Very and then, different uh, lives, very different. Cultures. And then some of the key developers get offered sexier opportunities, and they leave, and the 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 intelligence engine of the business disappears quickly, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's not always maybe necessarily a deliberate "let's buy them and kill them" strategy, but one way or the other, that's usually what happens. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. Let's get into the numbers. I have my checklist and my spreadsheet ready to go. You have Stock Doctor open in front of you. Yep. Let's talk about Afterpay, Ooh. net cash flow. Cash flow, operating cash flow was negative. <laughs> negative 181.981 million. Okay. And so just to talk about that a little <clears throat> bit, we said I focus on operating cash flow. I think it's so important just to break down the operating cash flow. This, so this is money coming in from sales less the cost of acquiring those sales so Mm -hmm. if it was a typical retail business it would be i've sold all these goods and i've had to employ frontline staff and the net is my operating cash flow Mm -hmm. so it's probably similar in here we've got for for afterpay we've got 3.3 million as receipts from customers so that would be the i guess that would be the four percent coming in from the retail merchants i'm not quite sure how the accounting would work here whether that's the the end users paying their four equal installments or not, but I think it's probably their income to afterpay. And then payments to suppliers of three point of negative three point five million dollars. So I'm guessing suppliers would be in afterpay, marketing, tech companies that host their servers, that kind of thing perhaps. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, it's negative and that's not a good thing. So a lot of these companies, of course, they're, they're happy to lose money while they're growing, you know, following the Amazon model of let's pull all the profits back into the company and get so big that we can't be challenged. And that that's worked for Amazon. Grow um, big, grow fast, yeah. as they used to say. Yeah, Probably we still say. So. But anyway, the point is negative $181 million in uh, operating cash flow. Right. Number of shares on issue? 
$1.798 million. And look, I just want to make a point about this as well. One of the things with tech stocks is they often pay for things with share issues. So they're staff, obviously, but if they bought another company, they might issue stock to do that. So if you have a look at Afterpay, uh, going back to December half in 2017, there was 164 million shares. Then the next half, 216 million shares, then 232, then 237. So that's a, a fair amount of dilution happening over time. So that's one thing you're also going to have to be aware of is that you're going to be diluted all the time with these companies. So even if profits do grow or even if their sales keep booming, your share of those sales might be going down. Explain for people who don't know what dilution means, what it means. Yeah, so when you're buying a share in a company, you're buying a share in its profits. Uh, this is not making a profit, but you're buying shares in the company. So you have a share on the equity or the, or the profits or in this case, probably the sales. And as those grow, say say sales grew by 50% and profit grew by 10%, you'd expect your share of those to grow, of the profit anyway, to grow by 10% as well. But if, if the company is issuing more shares, say they issue the same number of shares as already existed this year, then your share of that sales growth is halved. So if they issue 100 shares and you buy one of those, you have one one hundredth mm-hmm. of the upside of the business. Yep. And then if they issue another 100 shares, you have one two hundredth Correct. of the upside. Yeah. And so they can have- just keep issuing shares as much as they want and the value of your share is, in theory, decreasing every time they do that. Correct. Unless and their profit outruns out their uh, right. share issuance. Exactly. And that's that's the trick is basically you can't just buy into a company like this and set and forget. You've got to check the share issuance last year, you know, in the last period, six months or 12 months, and decide whether they've put more runs on the board than you've lost in dilution. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, what's the share price today? $23.24. That's as of the 5th, 5th of June. June. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so let's look at the sentiment in the share price graph. Uh, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, it looks like Mount Everest on that share <laughs> yeah, graph. It does. Yeah, so it's it's rising, so it gets a tick for sentiment. When did they float? Do you know? It's only a couple of years ago, I think. I don't have the date here. Um, yeah, it is only in the last couple of years. Stock Doctor's going back to the 30th of June 2017. So given it's a five-year graph, that probably was when they floated. May 2016. Oh, okay. I think here, according to Motley Fool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their initial public offer price was uh, $3, and it jumped 30% in the first week. And so now it's $23. Holy shit. So it's certainly like it's a, it's an attractive proposition to try and just you know gamble on the next float coming along that could be the next afterpay as well. You make twenty times your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you don't get into the IPO because you don't have the right contacts, yeah. But you buy at a dollar thirty, you're still making twenty times your money. Yeah. So it's it's sexy and seductive, definitely. Yeah, you didn't get in on that action. No, I didn't get in on the action of the other ones that. Crashed and burnt and would be listed as well. <laughs> Hot copper. Not mentioning any names. Hot copper. Mike Valander. My old mate, Mike. 
Floated hot copper. What's the one that there was one in the last year or so? I think it's called Get Swift. Something like that. Yeah, Get Swift Limited. Right. GSW. So that's. Oh, that's got it hasn't hasn't stopped. Sorry, but if I look at the share price graph, it's oh, it's gone from three dollars seventy nine at the height to down to twenty cents. So yeah, and it's it's fallen off very steeply in one period there. So you don't get the upside of the afterpays, but you don't get the downsides of the get swifts. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we give it a two for uh, sentiment. Yep. Afterpay. Yeah. Dividend yield. They're losing money, so I don't think it's going to be big. Uh, zero. Wow. One dividend. That's not big. Uh, what's their PE? Okay. This should be fun. No, no, we've got no PE because it's not making any money. <laughs> it, it had looked like it had one month of profit or one half of profit back in December 17. Hmm. And the PE worked out to be 523. <laughs> but since then, we've got no earnings. So right. No PE. No PE. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to worry about all the uh, historical PEs either, no. really. Net equity. Net equity is $340.83 million. All right. Well, they've got some They've got some money. Yeah, from investors. Yeah, from, <laughs> probably, yeah. You wonder whether, like, the core attributes of the CEOs of these companies is raising money or yeah. executing their business plan. Right. Maybe both. Okay. So net equity per share... I've got uh, as dollar forty-three. It's a long way from twenty-three bucks, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that gives me a price to book of one thousand five hundred and twenty-one percent. Right. Well, okay. yep. you know, good luck to them. Yeah. And, uh, that, and that could be where the share price could drop back to at some stage. Right. Do you have uh, their net profit after tax, their NPAT? Profitability, net profit after tax is negative 12.416 million. And just as an aside again, I'm looking at the f- projected earnings. So we, we do have projected earnings in Stock Doctor. So the loss is meant to go down uh, with the end of year results back to seven, a loss of 7.4 million. Hmm. And then someone's predicting a profit of 31 million in June 20. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that might, I mean, it might be too late, but that might be the time to start to look at it in terms of a QAV checklist if it starts making money. Right. In 12 months' time. Do you have the earnings per share there? Yeah, I do. So it's minus 5.62 cents. And that's a really interesting point, though, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be a profitable company according to this projection. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the, the June financial year, so June 2020. And, you know, so somehow an analyst has to make up their minds whether that's going to happen or not. Yeah. And it comes down to, I think, putting probabilities on all those things we've talked about, the chance of a competitor emerging, the chance of it growing that fast in the US, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So and they, maybe they've been spending all of this money to establish themselves in the US. Oh, they have, yeah. And, and it's going to pay dividends yeah. a year from now. Yep. That's and you've just got to work out what's the chance of that executing yeah. to plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that gives me a return on equity of minus 4%. Yep, Stock Doctor has minus 4.9%. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, future earnings per share? Uh, projected at being minus 3.7 cents per share. 3.7. 
All right. Well, that gives me a first intrinsic value of negative 2.6 and a second intrinsic value of negative 0.49. Well, let's run down the checklist. Is it a star stock? Uh, Good question. I thought it was, but it's not listed here as one. No. Okay. Is it on share analysis? I don't think we have share analysis working still. They should be up today. No, it's been down for like a month. What? Yeah. Must be doing some major platform upgrade. For a month? They, they sent me an email saying they're extending the, the <laughs> subscription free of charge for an extra month. Yeah, this process will take three to four weeks. Mm. What? I know. No, that never happens. There's something wrong there, isn't yeah. there? <laughs> <laughs> That's unheard of. Yeah. Unless they're run by National Australia Bank or the ATO, <laughs> nothing ever goes down for a month for yeah. an upgrade. And they're just changing the data provider too, so okay. I suggest there's a problem there. All right. Well, mm-hmm. we'll null that one out. Yep. Is the share price beneath the stock doctor intrinsic value? Mm. What's their intrinsic value? So again, oh. it's a consensus valuation from seven analysts of twenty-seven dollars fifty-six. So it is. So it is below that. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, the next question is about share analysis, so we'll null that. Mm-hmm. Um, is it below my intrinsic value if I use a nineteen and a half percent hurdle rate? No. Definitely not, because my intrinsic value is negative. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it below my intrinsic value number two? Definitely not. Just before we leave that, let's just do a hypothetical here and have yeah. a look at uh, that forecast earnings per share that was positive, 11.9 cents per share, and see what value we get if we put plug that in as the uh, future EPS. 11.9. Yeah, so $0.119 per share. Well, that gives me a future intrinsic value of a dollar fifty-nine, which is a long way south of where the share price is. So Twenty-three dollars. Even if we're optimistic that the forecasts are going to come true, yeah, yeah, they must be. They must be projecting a lot more growth after the next two years. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So it gets a zero for those uh, price to book. Is the share price less than thirty percent above the net equity per share? Well, I've got a net equity per share of a dollar forty-three. So it's uh, definitely not mm-hmm. um, lower than that. Does the share price have a positive trend? Well, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Give it a two. Yep. Is it the lowest PE in the last three years? Well, you have to null that one, I think, probably. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Or you can give it a zero. But null's probably fairer. Okay. Yep. Growth of earnings per share over the PE. Um, what do I get for that? Uh, uh, Nothing. Yeah, I mean, technically there is growth because it's it's dropping from a loss of five cents a share to three cents a share, but I think the formula won't work with two negatives in it. Right. Yeah. So we give it a zero. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Does the company have a consisting inc- consistently increasing equity? Uh, it did. Yeah. Yeah, we saw that. So we give it a one. Mm-hmm. Is the PE less than the yield? Well. It's all zero. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with that? Zero. Give, give it a zero? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's no PE, no yield. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was wondering if we okay. null it out. We can null it. Yeah, it doesn't really matter, I don't think. Really? Yeah. I'll just leave it to zero then. Okay. Is the dividend yield higher than the mortgage rate? Nope. And the mortgage rate's dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, depending on where you go. Yeah, Depending true. on which bank. 
Is the financial health from the subscription services stable or increasing? Distress. Let's have a look. Yeah, distress. And what's it? I probably left the page I needed to be on. It's stable. Okay, but Even stable and distress. distress. <laughs> okay, so we give it a one. Yeah. And that's just as an aside for that, um, Stock Doctor wouldn't like recommend this as a star stock because of that distress. Uh, but sometimes I'll see companies with this kind of financial health, but on the value side, it's compelling. So you, you're, if you have some comfort that the company's turning itself around, then mm-hmm. you, you can ignore that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, is my forecast intrinsic value more than twice the current share price? Uh, no. no. Uh, is it one of the top 10 stocks? No. We'll null that. Is the price per share divided by the cash per share less than or equal to six? Just just on that, uh, is it a top 10 stock? It's not mm. clearly. Mm. But the market cap for this stock is now nearly $5.5 billion. Wow. So, you know, you're, you're talking about it being, getting up to being as close to a company like AMP in terms of its market cap. Wow. Hmm. Well, it's a huge success story. In it, it is. In many ways. Would you rather, no, I was going to say, would you rather buy a share in AMP or Afterpay? But they're both on a bit of a hiding to nothing at the moment. Well, Afterpay probably isn't, but AMP is. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of decision you have to make. What's another sort of $6 billion company in the market, which is quite a large company, yeah. compared to this one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the price per share divided by the cash per share is minus 30. So that's less than six. Yeah, that's not what we want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. Negative gets a zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is the CEO an owner or founder? Oh, good question. Who's running Afterpay these days? See, we need to have Jason right. Van on. So a chap called Mr. Nicholas Molnar. And he owns 9.45%. He's the managing director? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he sounds like a founder. Executive chairman is a guy called Anthony Eisen, and he owns 9.45%. So mm-hmm. that's a yes. Right. Start, as a college student in Sydney, he started selling jewellery on eBay as part of his family business. He got so good at marketing and sales that he became the number one seller of jewellery in Australia on eBay. So there you go. So he is good at raising money he's good at sales yeah <laughs> and look good luck to them it's a it's a obviously a story and a, a product which has appeal to millennials in particular yeah and uh, wish them every success so we're giving them a two mm-hmm. for that yeah. uh next last question is about share analysis intrinsic value we don't have share yeah, analysis no. so we'll null it mm-hmm. so i get a total score of seven um we've got one two three Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen metrics here. So that gives me a total score of fifty percent. And then the measure of value, where we take the the checklist score divided by the price to cash flow number, which was negative. Yeah. So we're getting a negative zero point zero two. Right. So not above 0.1. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. Definitely an interesting business doing very well by a lot of metrics. Yeah. But uh, from your perspective, 
still a bit of a it's, it's a gamble, too it's, much of a gamble. It's it's a gamble. There are risks, and it's the price which deters me as well. Yeah. Uh, how do I value it? How do I know that ten dollars isn't the right price compared to twenty three dollars mm-hmm. or five dollars? The fact that it's just going up and up and up and up and up isn't really a huge metric for you. It's well, a metric. The, fir- the first thing I think of when I see a share that's going up and up and up and up is it could come down, 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 down. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's all to do with uh, the sentiment. It's all to do with how much stock's available in the market. I mean, the two founders have 18 19% between them. There's probably the initial investors from VC funds and uh, early, early pre-IPO investors, they'll probably have mm-hmm. another chunk. So... I'm not sure how much free stock is in this. And when something goes wrong, that's a small doorway to fit through when you're trying to sell. Right. Mm. It's a small doorway to get through going up as well, which is why the price is going up so mm. so quickly. And it's the flavour of the month and who knows what the flavour of the month will be in the next half. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, good luck to them. Great story and it's just, it's so far it's been a success. Yeah. Mm. Happy to look at them when they start making some money. Yeah. Okay. Right. Should we leave it there? Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, thanks. So that was our analysis back on the 5th of June. I'm recording this update on the 2nd of July and um, having a look at their share chart since then, they've gone from, what did we say they were at on the 5th? They were $23.24 on the 5th of June. Since then, they've gone up as high as ooh, $28.46, another five bucks and uh, they've also come down uh, as well since then they come down to twenty dollars 27 as of June 17th but they've rallied again I think as of today they're around about 26 dollars up sort of 10 percent on where they were when we analyzed them so anyway we'll see what happens with this whole visa thing and of course They've had some other sort of issues uh, over the last couple of weeks. If you've been following that, there's sort of some queries going on around money laundering compliance with Austrac. And just today, uh, it's announced that the board and executive leadership of Afterbay has been restructured. And uh, big changes happening there. So uh, Nick Molnar is actually stepping down as the CEO. Um, so we'll see what impact that has on the performance of the company and the share price, I guess, over the next 12 months. And we'll review it and see how it goes. But uh, as you can see, Tony's challenges regarding how much to pay for uh, uh, growth tech stock like this uh, and, you know, in our recent interviews with Matt Joss and uh, the one with Austin, which you'll see in part two of that next week, Tony's not really sure how to sort of price these stocks. It doesn't fit with his investment methodology. But you know, do your own analysis, make your own decisions. All right, we'll be back next week with part two of Austin and uh, another stock analysis. Have a great week.